Hey everybody, this is Rami. On this episode, we're going to learn about Southwest Solutions. Let me first anchor you in the location of the Detroit area. Southwest Detroit is a region within Detroit. It comprises several neighborhoods, including Delray, Hubbard Farms, Detroit, Boynton Oakwood Heights, and Springwells Village. It's also well known for Mexican Town, Detroit's vibrant Mexican community. And Southwest Solutions has played a major role in the development of this community. It started out in 1972, as you'll hear, as a mental health agency and became something quite different or better or, or just wonderful. Southwest Solutions grew into this extraordinary, networked, cooperative-like set of organizations that now today make deep impact in mental health. You'll meet John Van Camp, who's led this organization with incredible vision and humility at the same time. You'll hear about how they have entrepreneurial startup areas called Prosper Us, housing for homelessness and veterans, and all areas of family and child development. As I turn you over to the interview, I would like to draw your attention to John's excitement as he talks about the organization's evolution and direction. He was so engaging to listen to during the interview. I lost my place a couple times. He would be so excited about the ideas and the impact, and I was caught in it. I actually left there asking myself, how can I become a better partner in my community? So let's listen now to the interview with John Van Camp of Southwest Solutions. All right, we're here with John Van Camp at Southwest Solutions in Detroit. Welcome, John. I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks very much for coming here yeah. and for this interview. I really appreciate it. So let's first give a feel of what Southwest Solutions is. Sure. At this point in time, we would see that we're a family of agencies that in partnerships with others are working in Detroit's neighborhoods, both at the people level and at the place level. But it probably takes a story from the beginning, because when we started, we had 10 staff, and we now have about 500. So it's that story of the evolution that brings sense as to what we are. Yeah, I really want to unpack this a little bit. Just real quick at a service level, you say you work with people and places in the neighborhoods. Is it veterans mostly that you work with, or all yeah, kinds, right? It's with all kinds. I mean, we really started in 1972 as a small community mental health agency. It was not long after the Kennedy administration had created the concept of community mental health, and it put together a funding model for community mental health. And Monsignor Clem Kern and Reverend Bill Moldwin and Reverend George Van Antwerp and Faustina Ramirez Knoll and others saw the concept of community mental health and saw the dollars available. They did a lot of work, and we opened our doors in 1972 with a staff of 10 and a budget of 200000 <laughs> So that's where we started. I shouldn't say we, because I didn't start until 1973. I started as a grad student from Wayne State, the School of Social Work, community organizing, placed with the agency. But what attracted not only the clinicians, but some of the community-oriented people, is that context of community mental health. It started with mental health rather than mental illness. So the treatment of somebody's mental illness is a key part of mental health. But so is housing, so is health care, mm. so is a job, so is education. All of those things are a part of, if you will, my emotional well-being or my mental health. Oh, definitely. But community mental health, what they realized is that because of the myths and the stereotypes and the stigma about mental illness, 
those community values are in a community and people either open them up or don't. So they divided the country into catchment areas to implant a community mental health agency in each. So you could work in a community context to have the community open up their values to their brothers and sisters who had a mental illness. So we started at the very beginning creating a system of care for people with mental illness. What that meant is we came to the table providing treatment services, but we had to find health care. We had to find housing. We had to find workforce development. And in that, some things we partnered and some things we did ourselves. But when you realize you can create a system of care for a vulnerable population, you could do it for another population. I think maybe that's the first evolution yeah. of business thinking. All right. right. Wow. We could create a system of care for people with mental illness. We can also do it for people who are homeless. Mm-hmm. So we and our partners then created a pretty comprehensive array of services for people who are homeless. Well, then we realized when another opportunity came along, we could do it for kids in the juvenile justice system. So you see kind of a business, you start in one, but you see your line of business applies to others. So for the last 15 years, in partnerships with the Downriver Guidance Center, we have created a very comprehensive system for kids in the juvenile justice system. And then about 20 years ago, we started working with children, with parents, with very young children. So we entered that space of early childhood development. But what we saw there when we entered it, if you just work on the kids, you'll go so far. But if you work with the whole family, If you're as focused on the mom and on the dad Mm -hmm. or the aunt and the uncle, that impacts the child. Right. Okay. So we created a system of care for families with young children. So how do we help mom? Maybe mom's working for a company and that company moves out of Detroit and the skill set she has is not now what's needed in the marketplace. So how do we help her with her math skills or her English skills or to get the next elevation of a job that she wants? So we started looking at things pretty comprehensively. Does that make sense how I'm trying to describe it? Yeah, as I keep listening to you in those two or three scenarios, it's like you are looking at all of the factors that are affecting, I guess what I would call the beneficiary you're trying to help and setting up an infrastructure around them and almost a village-type way with these partners, right? Yeah, is, we use the okay. village a lot. We talk about, at some level, what are we trying to create? We believe that community is an intervention. Yes, I, I okay? believe that too. Yeah, okay, and that village is an intervention. Yeah. In other words, that village works. I don't know if they talk about governmental structures or families, but that village works because everyone is centered on the success of everyone in that village. Yeah. Well, that's a community. Yeah. But what we realize is you can't just focus on the person. You need to also focus on the place. In other words, what is the condition of housing? What's happening with your neighborhood as well as with you as a neighbor? So we're vested in the success of individuals and the success of neighborhoods. Is that so kind of the integrated wellness between the wellness of people and the wellness of place? You've done something that many try to do, and you've done this really well. You have really partnered with these organizations and created stability. Mm -hmm. Many tell me in the field, gosh, Rami, I've tried to do that, but it's unstable. I can't depend on that partner staying. 
you have so successfully built this infrastructure of partnerships and kept the community together. Yeah, I mean, trust me, we've had a lot of lessons learned. You know, we've probably had as many failures as that we have successes, but we learn from the failure. But let's take healthcare, okay? Very early on, we saw studies coming out of the National Institute of Mental Health that said people with severe mental illness die 25 years earlier than the general mm. population. Hmm. Probably one of the largest health discrepancies that there is, or health disparity. So we knew we had to address healthcare. We also knew that we weren't doctors and nurses. So we looked for a provider who wanted to partner with us. It took us a while. Quite frankly, it was some clients who said, there's this free faith-based clinic called Covenant Community Care that is treating us with respect. Mm. So wow, then I want to meet them. Yeah. And the first place you start is, is there alignment on mission, vision, and values? Right. So you spend a lot of time at that. That's because a good when word. you're in a true partnership, you're probably equally, if not more, vested in their success than your success. So when you can get to that point, yes. it's like a marriage. When you're right. more vested in your partner, it comes back to you. All yeah. right. So we were fortunate. Covenant at the time was a free clinic. So we worked with them till now they have very significant funding. They have over 100 staff. They're in seven locations around the city. But they started with us. So they grew with you. Your yes. intention wasn't just to take, it was to help them grow Oh, as absolutely. Well. They're totally independent and do things. Yeah. But they're in all of our buildings where we're working with our clients, they're in our buildings in an integrated kind of model. That's an example of a partnership that works yes. because we're vested in their success, they're vested in ours, yes. but we're drawn together by a common mission, vision, and values. Yes, that's a great, I'm going to make sure I highlight that word on there for everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's a couple of examples, social entrepreneurship, that I think highlights again another example of partnerships. A number of years ago, I had a sabbatical from the McGregor Foundation, and it allowed me to go around the country looking at best practices. Mm. And I asked people where I should go. So I asked Rip Rapson from the Kresge Foundation where I should go. He said, John, you ought to go to Minneapolis, where he was a former deputy mayor. Mm. And he said, look at Neighborhood Development Corporation. He said, they have the best social entrepreneurship program in the country. Mm. So I went there. And I was really, really impressed. I mean, for 20 years, they worked a lot with immigrants, okay? Whereas here in Detroit, we're working with Detroiters, mostly minority and some immigrants. How do you start somebody who has a passion for a, a concept, for an idea, who's gonna be all in, and their family will be all in? They're gonna work 23-7 on that concept, and they're, they're willing to go through some failures in order to get to the business model that they see. So for 20 years, they perfected a model. And they were fortunate to bring evaluators on board from the very beginning, so they can now show the thousands of jobs created, the millions of dollars of property taxes paid and personal income tax. Those are the measures you want to yeah. look at, right? Oh, As yeah. a community to look at that. So probably better than my going there and seeing it is that Steve Tabachman also went on his own. So Steve brought them to Detroit and brought the foundation community uh, to take a look at what the Neighborhood Development Corporation had done. 
And they said, we want to fund it. See, Steve said, okay, well, you ought to do it through Southwest. But the model is one where we look for a community partner. That community partner could be a church. It could be a nonprofit organization. It could be a group. But they are known in their community. They're known in the Latino community or the Arab community or the Hmong community or in the east side Detroit or in Asb. They're known. They're trusted by the residents there. So then we partner with them. We bring the skill set. We bring the 20 hours of individual and group training. We bring the business model and the coaching and the TA. But then we do it with you in your language, by people who speak your language, language by people who look like you in your community to that trusted community partner. So Prosperous is the name of our business. A lot of people don't even know that Southwest started it because we have it allowed to be owned so much by our community partners. But we've now had over 460 graduates from that in just three and a half years. People are now starting their own businesses, getting loans. We have a micro lending program in there, character-based loans. So there's an example of starting off being a mental health agency, gets into social entrepreneurialism, which is a social enterprise in and of itself. Uh, It is, and you continue to keep solving and strengthening the ecosystem by bringing in all of these connection points that eventually lead to mental health if they're not solved, right? We're now about the mental health of the community. And I think over time, we have evolved into working in neighborhoods around the city with neighbors, in neighborhoods. Our neighborhood with our partners is Southwest Detroit. It's going to take us and our partners 10, 15, 20 years to make Southwest Detroit, the 80,000 people who live here, intentionally a place that people want to live, work, play, pray, and all of that. It'll take us a while. But some of what we do, the fact that we do mortgage lending, the fact that we do workforce development and prosperous, we can do in your community. We can do in other communities around the city. So in fact, we probably are in more neighborhoods around the city than just about any other NGO. Yeah, and thank you for using NGO because that's a name that works for for us. That's relatable when you're outside of the U.S., but Southwest Solutions is so well known. They even know it in other parts of the state and other parts of the Midwest. Mm -hmm. It's really viewed as an anchor organization and a model that others would like to achieve and follow. Well, a number of years, I didn't know how to describe our agency. Community mental health didn't seem, when you're into housing or mortgage, lending or workforce development and early childhood, it didn't seem to lend itself to a label. But I went to a White House conference, fairly small, but it was how do you turn distressed neighborhoods into neighborhoods of opportunity? And one of the panels, it was phenomenal. There were assistant secretaries of state of HUD, HHS, education, justice, treasury, and senior leaders from the White House, all on the same panel. But that wasn't the best part. The best part, as they admitted, and this is only five years ago, they said, finally, we're speaking from the same PowerPoint. Mm. I understand that. In other words, prior to that, education would say, here's what we're doing in this distressed community. And what they realized, that it took an integrated approach among all of what they did to work in. And they were talking about 40 blocks in Baltimore or 60 in Cleveland or 200 in Chicago. In Detroit, we're talking at many, many, many neighborhoods around, around the city. So what it takes is a comprehensive human development approach. 
which is education and early childhood and health care and workforce development and financial coaching and all a comprehensive human development approach. At the same time, a comprehensive community and economic development approach, which is housing and commercial development and banking and entrepreneurship and small business. And at the same time, you have to have that resident voice from those neighborhoods guiding what they want to have and the changes and the opportunities created. So you see, there's no governmental entity that does all of that. There's no NGO that does all of that. It's kind of a collective impact model of how do you get all of those aligned in a neighborhood to create neighborhoods of opportunity. It's almost a combination of a cooperative, yet yeah. partnerships. Yeah, yeah. But, but the best of all of those is what's actually happening here. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, there's an really economic development model during that sabbatical, and it came out of San Diego, Market Creek Plaza. And they've had some lessons learned and some challenges, but they were one of the first to do it. There was a, the Jacobs Family Foundation in downtown San Diego were giving out about a million in a year, and they realized they weren't changing the world, so they decided to move to the most challenged part of San Diego and lead a resident-led, resident-driven economic development project. Well, so I went out there and I looked at what they did. I looked at the lessons learned. I got some guidance from them, but then came back and with help from the Skillman Foundation, we found an area that would make all kinds of commercial sense. In other words, it's where 80,000 cars were traveling on the expressway in a day and 10,000 coming across from Canada. So we knew that that was going to be developed, but that a CVS or a gas station or a Wendy's would move in, and those are nice, but that's not what neighbors want. So the Skillman Foundation gave us enough money, and we hired residents, and we did 700 face-to-face -face interviews. Mm, that's yeah, a lot. That is a lot. That's a that lot. Is, but the data that you gather when you do, especially when you hire residents to interview other residents, in other words, where are they spending their money? What businesses that they're going outside that they would like to have here? What would keep them here? Mm. So they designed the survey, they implemented it. Now we're armed with what they want in in terms of economic development in their neighborhood. Now we're looking for dollars to buy the property and then create development opportunities based on what residents want. Well, that's an economic development model that ought to be replicated throughout this city and throughout the state. Right. There's so much of everyone having to submit to what everyone else yeah. has decided is good for them, right? Yes, and their isn't voice it? Misses, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that's what I love about this. We're still working at it. It's a work in progress. Yeah. But I think one of the things we, we look to be is early adapters of other people's best practices. In other words, we're not innovators. We don't conceptualize something. Yeah. But we look at how can we learn from the best practices there and through partnerships created in the neighborhoods that we're working. Well, that stays with and honors your yeah. theme of community because yeah. you, by default, become a bigger community when you're learning from each other. <laughs> yeah in yeah, other locations, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it networks you, if you will, to other cities that are already doing some learning. Another example is one that United Way and LISC brought to the community of just about 10 years ago. It's called the Center for Working Family. It's a concept, quite frankly, that was born by the Annie E. Casey, a children's foundation, mm. said that we need to work at creating centers for working families. But the Annie Casey Foundation found that 
if you work at the economic viability of the parents, that's going to have as much impact on the child as the lesson plan that that kid has in third grade. Oh, Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. They're watching a role model. Yeah. Right. So it's integrated three different platforms. One is financial coaching. And they have shown that if you do tailor-made individual financial coaching one-on-one with a low or moderate income person, as a percent of wealth created, you're going to create more wealth for that person than a high net worth person. A high net worth person there, you're helping them with their investment. On a low and moderate income kind of person, you're looking at their spending. You're looking at their use of payday loans. You're looking at what they're buying or not buying. And you're restructuring their debt so that they can start to create savings and start to build assets in a home and whatever. Mm -hmm. That's, well, as a percent of wealth created for them, that's a far greater percent of wealth created. Oh, yeah. So financial coaching is one of the, the legs, individualized financial coaching. Second is public and private benefits. Most people do not know all of the public and private benefits to which they are eligible. You might know about earned income tax credit. So it's knowledge of all of the public and private benefits. And the third is workforce development. How do you take wherever you are in your career, in your workforce career, and how do you work for you to move up that ladder on your job and on your career? Well, if you put all those together, now that's the center for working family. And that's what United Way, when they first brought to town the concept, they asked a few of us to come in and say, what do you think? Well, we were in early childhood at the time, and we saw the opportunity to work with their parents. So you jump in. So that's an early adapter of other people's best practices. Yeah. What's one of the things that really surprised you about either how well a collaboration worked? It went beyond your imagination, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think Prosperous is an example because I've talked to Mihailo Tanali from Minneapolis, the one who had been doing it for 20 years. We were the first place that he allowed to replicate the model. He had presidents come or from senior officials. He had the Ford Foundation and others come. He was afraid somebody wouldn't honor the model and own it the same way. But it's one thing for it to work in Minneapolis. They have a lot more opportunities. And Mihailo even said, John, because now they're now doing this in New Orleans and Philadelphia and D.C., but he said, John, we're able to go to those cities because of Detroit. Because if we show them that it worked in Minneapolis, they could easily discount, that's Minneapolis. You don't have the same challenges that we do in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So we look for that trusted community partner. And when they see the model that we can bring entrepreneurship to them, they're all in. So I think Prosperous is a shining star for Detroit and for what you can do through collaborations. And Prosperous is as early stage business, teaching about yeah, business early? Yeah, yeah. It's like I'm, yeah, Prosperous is like I'm making tacos in my basement. Or I've got an idea on a hair salon. Or I want to start a landscape business, but I don't know how to write a business plan. I don't know how to get the financing. I don't know how to do the marketing. I don't know what are all the steps in starting up. So we do one-on-one. Uh, about half of the 20 sessions are one-on-one, and half are group sessions. And then you get to the point you pass, you graduate in your business plan, and then we get you advisors who stay with you as you're growing your business. Mm-hmm. Then we make micro loans available to you, character-based loans. 
the beauty of the model out of in, uh, Neighborhood Development Corporation. And I talk to them a lot because they come in every six months or we go there and learn from them. But they look at their loan loss and they're in, I think I'm pretty close to being right, like a six to nine percent. They say if they're too much under 6%, then they're too close to a bank and they're not taking enough risk. If they're 10% or more, well, maybe they're not. So the very fact that they want to be in this place that takes enough risk but not too much risk, that's the place where we want to be because the system's there for people where there's no risk. Yeah. So how do we, based on character loans or, or quality ideas, say, I'm going to back you yeah. and then work with you to be invested in your success? Coming out of the financial industry for 23 years prior to doing what I'm doing now, so many people achieve success in their careers. And I met lots of folks who made their wealth and their businesses and that. And it, they'd almost hit this point during their life sometimes, usually after their 50s, where they'd feel unfulfilled. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here in front of you, and you are the opposite of this. You look like you're ready to take off on dynamite from all the <laughs> <laughs> fulfillment that's bubbling out of you. I'm almost distracted by this question of, like, what's on your heart for grand plans for this? I feel like you've got plans bouncing around your head and your heart for well, what could you Well, you know, here. I really want to work with others on Detroit's neighborhoods. In other words, if you look at downtown and midtown, and you look at the trajectory it's on, it's phenomenal. But 20 years ago, when they first started looking at the riverfront, the cement plants and all, when they looked at Woodward Avenue, when they looked at the campus marshes, but they started those plans way back. And who was at the table? Government was at the table. The heads, the titans of industry were at the table, banks and the auto, they were at the table. Philanthropy, the heads of philanthropy, and they created a common vision and a common agenda. So they started aligning themselves on a plan for downtown and then midtown. Well, we need to do the same. And they had key anchors the key anchors of the Henry Ford Hospital, of the DIA, the DMC, all of these key anchors. So our challenge that excites me is how do you do that in neighborhoods? There's an emerging model that they call collective impact. So collective impact was first coined as a term by the publication Stanford Social Review about five years ago. They looked around the country and they saw examples of some real significant change that was atypical. They looked at Cincinnati, and they saw how in Cincinnati, the community around saw that the high school graduation rate was really poor. And they knew that if they went back to the education industry alone and put pressure on them, it would only be marginal improvement. And primarily, in this case, it was driven by the business community. But the business community was vested in improving the high school graduation rate because that created the talent that they need, that kept businesses there, that drew more business. So the business community came to the table. And then they brought others to the table who were vested in the change in the high school graduation rate. The real estate community would be vested in that, right? The faith-based community, that's their congregations. They're leaving and they're coming. So they brought all of the parties who were vested in that, in changing the high school grade, and they created a common vision then a common agenda. 
And then they created metrics to see how we're improving. And they were public about it. What it allowed was for each entity to stay in their lane. So the business community could stay in their lane. The faith base could stay in their lane. But they started seeing how their lane, if combined with other people's lanes, could begin to change the trajectory of high school education. And they did it, they strive is the organization that came out of Cincinnati. You can look at that. They can show phenomenal success with not much new money, but more alignment. Well, then the Stanford Social Review looked at New Hampshire. And I'm not sure whether it was Manchester or somewhere in New Hampshire where it was childhood obesity. There was very high childhood obesity. And if you went back to the primary care system and put a little pressure, they could do a little bit. But if you get alignment of of different parties, from Girl Scouts to Boy Scouts to the sports community, you look for who really is vested in that chain. You get them around and you create a common vision, an agenda. They can stay in their lane. Well, it was David Campbell, the late David Campbell from the McGregor Foundation. I'm sorry, it's hard for Mm. me. He said, John... What you guys and your partners are doing, you're taking a collective impact approach to neighborhoods. How do you get at a neighborhood level? How do you get alignment of government, of business, of philanthropy, of NGOs, and of residents to create a common vision around that neighborhood, to create a common agenda around that? That's what excites me. That's the next step of what we're wanting to do. You know, it's not our model. We're doing it with others, and we're trying to do it here in southwest Detroit with many partners. But this could be done anywhere in Detroit. But it takes that kind of of momentum to really create neighborhoods of opportunity across Mm -hmm. the city. And patience and grace. Yeah, yeah. They said it takes 10, 12 years. Yeah. Yeah, so it's persistence and consistence, patience and Mm. grace, and finding right partners. Yeah. I just want to land on that for the listeners. We get a lot of emails about it's not happening fast enough. Slow is good. Slow and persistent. Yes, persistent. Yes, persistence. And knowing they're going to be setbacks, and you got to be prepared for them. Right, right. Slow doesn't mean you become a victim. Yeah, yeah. It's a dogged determination, (laughs) more like. Persistent and consistent, yes. Yes, yes. How would you handle the neighborhood pieces when... In many cases in the Detroit neighborhoods, there isn't business already, and there isn't. And you and I both know in some of the neighborhoods, some of the residents of the neighborhoods feel almost sequestered there or virtually fenced in because of opportunity that they have not felt they've had. So really it's bringing in all of these parties and partnerships or the governments, the businesses, from the outside, which is a delicate conversation, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. One of the things that's going on in the city is, in Detroit Future City took the first phenomenal step in recognizing that there's a future for every neighborhood, but many of them are different. Some are going to be heavily populated. Some might end up in parks. That's a tough transition, because if I'm in a neighborhood that over time has had a lot of disinvestment, but I've still been there, but 
Others kind of say, you know, we need to transition that into park and other kinds of things. Those decisions we're not addressing. I mean, that's really up to city leadership and others to make choices. But once they've made those kind of choices and whatever, how do you create then in, in viable neighborhoods that others say, all right, let's concentrate on that. That's where I think this model of getting alignment of government, because government has already made some decisions, we're gonna work in this neighborhood and this neighborhood. We need alignment of where government works and where philanthropy works, and where schools. We've seen examples, be it public or private schools, that have opened up in areas because the land was cheap when there weren't people around. Matter of fact, it'll go nameless, but six, seven years ago, we got a call from a school saying, we just built a school and there's not a lot of people around. Could you build some housing around it? Talk about the lack of alignment. Right. <laughs> so there's got to be alignment by government making decisions. That's the mayor, the city council, and all the, the players in that. And then uh, philanthropy needs to align up with that. Uh, business will follow because business wants to go where there are people in whatever. And then bringing the residents to nonprofit agencies, the NGOs, and the residents to the table. That's a commitment that is often not kept, and it's tough because we we come from fighting for our own little bit, and now we're going to need to collaborate. But we work through that. If you listen well, if you bring their voice to the table in an honored kind of way, and over time, they'll begin to see that and buy into that. And it's, at the end of the day, it's about building relational trust. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You know? yeah. There are human hearts on yeah. every yeah. side of the spectrum yeah. here. Yeah. I yeah. mean, the success of Detroit, I love that it's a place now that people are moving into. I love that. My wife, Penny Bale, and I, we live very close to downtown, so we see that resurgence. But we need to be vested in Detroiters, Detroiters who have been here. And that's our success, is are they staying? Are they growing? Are they creating the opportunities for their families to enhance their, their well-being? That'll be our success. And the mayor says that. Mayor says success of Detroit is our overall population. Well, that's in the neighborhoods. Are we going up or down? Right. Well, I'm almost speechless, which is hard <laughs> to happen. <laughs> is there anything else you want to share? Well, I appreciate your doing this. Your story, here you had a career, but you had this passion over here. And you got to be persistent and consistent, Rona. So I give you, because you could have early on, but I think people do want to hear these stories. Yeah, and we're finding people are inspired by the large and the small. Yes, yes. It's, it's, courage that human beings are having and in your position and others but it does take the common denominator is this courageous determination yeah. to stay focused on the game yeah. not that we don't all get discouraged here and there oh yeah but i'm even noticing in the last two or three years we're having common denominator conversations just around fending communities around yes. one small little retail business yeah. we've got yeah. a foundation a bank a yeah. governmental agency and traditional investors all yeah. considering a transaction in the same yeah. entity. Yeah. And they're starting to talk to each other, which is even more... Well, well, and the new financing <laughs> from crowdfunding, all these new investment, and it's phenomenal. Ways that people can now get involved. Yeah, so the opportunity, the timing today yeah. to affect change, yeah. given the mentality of collaboration, mm -hmm. yeah. And avoiding the slippery slope of enabling, yeah, right? Yeah, That's always yeah, that point, yeah. Chuck, that we've all got to keep ourselves on. Yeah, yeah. But it's just this beautiful thing. And I really believe that more and more creativity and innovation can come out of places when people stop and pay attention to each other. Yeah. 
Well, I'll close it out, but I'd love your permission to come back. Yes, and, absolutely, and Rhonda. Maybe keep a journal <laughs> of what's happening sure, here. Sure. That would be really interesting. Okay. I'd be very happy to. Okay. I'm honored. That'd be <laughs> great. Well, thank you thank so you. much. Time to say goodbye for this episode. As you know, we close our episodes with a Detroit music artist curated by Assemble Sound. So please meet Ah Oh with their song Motown Milky Way. 